Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is Ms. Mickey Aronson, senior research fellow at the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security. Prior to joining the Institute, Mickey served on the National Security Council in the Israeli Prime Minister's office. Mickey and I will be talking about Russia, Syria, Iran, the Gulf, normalization, and why she is very optimistic about U.S.-Israel relations under a Biden administration. My conversation with Mickey Aronson begins after this short break and a few remarks and update on the humanitarian catastrophes in Yemen and Syria. I believe that if there is an alternative for Syria that would allow it to normalize relations with the region, I think the Syrians would act more positively from an American and an Israeli perspective. We all know what Assad is. He is what he is. And if there could be justice in this world, he would pay for what he did. But it's not a question of justice now, but a question of interest. And an Israeli interest is uh, to have Iran as far away from its borders as possible. That was Mickey Aronson, who will be joining us shortly. Now, President-elect Biden has talked about a dark winter facing the U.S. and the world because of COVID-19. Well, this winter is going to be longer and darker for Yemen and Syria, which are both facing imminent and urgent food crises. In addition to the already incalculable costs of the wars in both countries and the spread of COVID-19. Now let's start with Yemen, which according to the UN remains the world's most pressing humanitarian disaster. Yemen faces, quote, catastrophic food insecurity, including the further expansion of widespread famine, according to a recent UN report. More than 230,000 Yemenis have died due to the war, more than half through what the UN calls indirect causes, such as lack of food, lack of health services, and decaying infrastructure. Sanitation and clean water are scarce in Yemen, and only about half of the health facilities there are functioning at all. And those that are aren't functioning well, and they often lack the necessary equipment to deal with COVID-19 and many other diseases. 80% of the country's population, over 24 million people, require some form of humanitarian assistance, including more than 12 million children, the UN reports. Now, children, not surprisingly, as is always the case in these tragedies, are paying a disproportionately terrible price as a result of the five-year war and then disease, economic collapse, and decaying infrastructure. More than 3,000 children have been killed in the first nine months of 2020, according to UNICEF, the UN Children's Agency. Nearly 325,000 children under the age of five suffer from severe acute malnutrition, and more than 5 million children face a heightened threat of cholera and severe diarrhea, according to UNICEF. And this is all in addition to the increasing threat from COVID-19. A UN expert panel on Yemen this week called out the warring parties on both sides for effectively starving civilians. The panel called for an end to 
surreal and absurd, that's the panel's words, human rights violations taking place in the Yemen war and which continue unchecked and represent potential war crimes. And then there's Syria, which also faces a growing crisis of food insecurity, according to a separate UN report last week. There are about 6.7 million internally displaced Syrians. That's out of a population of about 17 million. Many of the displaced lack proper shelter and live in either damaged buildings, schools, or tents. An estimated 9.3 million Syrians are food insecure, the highest number since the start of the Syrian uprising war almost 10 years ago. El Monitor contributor Sultan Al Khanj reports this month from Idlib, which is a flashpoint for possible renewed conflict in Syria, that the spread of COVID-19 in opposition-controlled areas of the country has already exceeded the capacity of the health infrastructure there. And now I am really pleased to turn to our conversation with Mickey Aronson, Senior Research Fellow at the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security. Prior to joining the Institute, Mickey was Senior Director of the Diplomatic Secretariat at the National Security Council in the Israeli Prime Minister's Office. In this role, she was responsible for managing the international relationships of the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor, including with foreign NSC counterparts and diplomats. She regularly prepared policy recommendations for the Prime Minister and the National Security Advisor on regional and international affairs. Mickey's research presently focuses on international involvement in the Middle East, including Russia's evolving role in the region, how it impacts Israeli national security and other regional and global developments. My conversation with Mickey Aronson begins now. Mickey, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's get started. President-elect Biden is considering a new round of negotiations with Iran, including pursuing follow-on agreements to tighten and lengthen Iran's nuclear constraints, as well as address the missile program. This is what Biden told Tom Friedman last week. And he said that his approach will involve, quote, consultation with our allies and partners, which you can assume means Israel. How do you see U.S.-Israel engagement over Iran evolving under President Biden? And what would be your advice for the next administration in terms of working with the Israeli government to get a better nuclear agreement with Iran? Well, let me state the obvious first. Biden is a longtime friend of Israel. Prime Minister Netanyahu knows him personally for decades, and this would definitely make it, I think, easier to proceed with working together. Now, Biden stated a number of times he understands the importance of Israel for the United States. But there's a question what he will be handling first, his priorities. He has a lot on his agenda, uh, COVID, world economy, NATO, China, Russia. I don't know how much of his energy would be uh, invested in changing the Middle East. Part of it, the main, maybe the main issue is the Iranian nuclear issue. Maybe he would want to deal with it first and get it out of his agenda so he can turn into other, dealing with other topics. I can tell you about particularly uh, the JCPOA, the agreement, uh, the Iranian uh, nuclear agreement. 
Israel's policy is very simple. We disagree with the agreement because it didn't solve the problem of the Iranian nuclear threat. Now, uh, it sounds trivial, but it needs to be restated. Now, if the coming, the incoming Biden administration uh, adopts a similar approach to the Obama administration in this regard, it, we will have a problem. The Iranian nuclear issue should be a question of their capability and not a question left to their decision. Now, this is really the essence, the bottom line. Now, Israel was never afraid that Iran would break the deal. Israel was afraid that Iran will keep the deal uh, because it allowed them an industrial scale of uranium enrichment. I, sorry for using a bit dramatic uh, example that comes to mind, something similar, but it, to us, it's like catching a serial killer and telling him, keep your knives, but don't use them. And here, have some money, but please don't use it for negative purposes. Now, to me, this sounds like a perfect example, though a very provocative one. I hear some voices saying that maybe the Biden administration would adopt the agreement almost as is. That would be very negative from Israel's perspective because it will not solve the threat in Israel. Now, sometimes, not often, rarely, but politicians do mean what they say. And if an Iranian politician or a leader says he wants to destroy Israel and to export the revolution, I believe him. I, I listen to his plans. However, uh, to say that uh, those who say that either you have to adopt the JCPOA or turn to war is simply not true because there is, you know, this is not exactly what you asked me about, but I have to restate it. There is no animosity between the Israeli people and the Iranian people. This is a regime issue, Iranian regime. And that's why it's handled accordingly. Now, you can agree or you can disagree with the Trump's administration's policy, but it did put enormous pressure on Iran. And now it's the time to decide how to use it. I keep on being asked, uh, why didn't Israel attack? Why didn't Israel operate militarily against Iran? And I think the obvious answer is because this is not an Israeli problem. This is an international problem. And I think Israel is the first one that would vote for a diplomatic solution because here it's not a theory. We are the ones who are going to get hurt first if Iran attacks, either directly or through proxies, uh, Hezbollah and so on. So, yes, I think we would be very happy if a diplomatic and effective diplomatic uh, solution would be adopted by the U.S. Mickey, you were a senior member of Prime Minister Netanyahu's national security staff during the Obama administration. You had mentioned uh, in your remarks that there's a longstanding relationship between Prime Minister Netanyahu and then the and Joe Biden, going back to when he was a senator and then as vice president, I think, as I understand it, a very, very warm relationship. And many familiar faces will return under a Biden administration on the U.S. side, working on Middle East and national security issues. Do you expect any change in relations after Trump? Obviously, Netanyahu and President Trump also had a fantastic relationship. And 
Do you think these potential differences, some of which you you laid out, can be worked out as smoothly as U.S.-Israel relations have worked in the past? Do you see any other problems on the horizon? Are you upbeat and confident in the U.S.-Israel relationship under the next administration? Extremely confident. Israeli leaders from all the political spectrum recognize the critical importance of uh, bipartisan support for Israel. Even if there are disagreements, you can disagree. Even in the time of the Obama administration, uh, where there were many disagreements, an MOU on uh, defense assistance to Israel was signed. And it was particularly important for Israel to sign it during the Democratic administration, despite the disagreements on Iran, because the previous MOU was signed during the Republican administration of Bush Jr. So I think in any way there will be good working relations and beyond that, Israel understands again the the importance, I can't stress it that enough, of the U.S. and uh, I think much will depend on the involvement and positions of the people that will work with President Biden. Because as I said before, he is a longtime friend of Israel. And I think we can expect uh, relations and the negotiations to be in that spirit. Nikki, you are one of Israel's top experts on Russia and its role in the Middle East. You speak the language, you know the players there. The road, to a new Iran deal, if it happens, we'll go through Moscow. How does Putin game out this scenario of a new round of Iran negotiations and what's in it for him? Well, the obvious answer is of course that Russia is for the agreement. They came out very strongly against the fact that the US decided to, to withdraw. And this is almost trivial. However, let me point a few new answers. Russia indeed does not want any war, I believe, that has to do with Iran, disagreements, nuclear, of course. However, it also does not want to be alone in the international arena against the US. Uh, President Biden already defined Russia as the central danger for American national security a number of times. So I think Russia has an interest to prevent war and prevent disagreement, but it also has an interest to prevent very comprehensive agreement between Iran and the U.S. and the West, because this way Russia has leverages over Iran. If Iran is isolated, it would be more dependent on Russia. It increases uh, Iranian dependence on Russia, economically, financially, almost in every way. And if Russia plays a major role, actually speaking, dealing with Iran, it also joins a very exclusive club of mediators. Russia is an international mediator vis-a-vis the international community. If direct negotiations between the U.S. and Iran will take part, this will weaken Russia and will be against Russian interest. There's also the issue of precedent. And I think what happens with Iran has great implications on Russia, definitely from a Russian perspective. For example, the discussion, the international discussion about regime change in Iran how the, and the potential implications. 
Russia would not want regime change in Iran because maybe a new regime would not be that friendly towards her, but it would be uh, accommodating towards the U.S. Also, if agreements can be broken with Iran, it means agreements can be broken with Russia. And of course, Russia objects to any uh, regime change that takes place because of uh, popular demand or external pressure because it relates exactly to Russian fears about what can happen in Russia. Uh, potential regime change because of popular demand or external interference. Let's stay on Russia for a minute. How does Prime Minister Netanyahu see his relationship with Vladimir Putin? It seems they have a good connection. The Russian president has tried for several years, including after the Helsinki summit, to try to broker some type of understanding regarding deployment of Iranian, Iranian-backed forces away from Israel's border. That's gone nowhere, obviously, and especially as Iran now has this kind of advanced missiles that can reach Israel. And Israel is regularly hits Iranian targets in Syria, as far north as Aleppo province, to, to counter that capability. Help hold this all together for us. What does the Israeli prime minister and Israel expect from Putin with regard to Iran in Syria? I think uh, your question had a perfect, all the perfect answers in, in it. I can tell you firsthand there is a very good relationship between Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Putin. It's a very respectful relationship. It's very intense. They speak on the phone. They visit each other. Of course, Netanyahu went to Russia many times more. And uh, we remember our size, Israel's size and uh, Russia's 11 times zone country size. I think we can say there, there's almost an open line between the presidents and uh, there is a lot of respect shown to Russia on issues that are important to her, like recognizing Russia's role in ending World War II and fighting the Nazis. Uh, this is something that Israel shows, uh, gives Russia a lot of credit, uh, as opposed to the US, by the way. And I think this is very important. However, I don't believe that in case of a major crisis, this would change Russia's uh, choices or behavior because Russia's interests would remain the same. I prefer to trust more uh, Russia's rationality and Russia's preference uh, for its own interests. Russia respects Israel because Israel demonstrated it is willing to operate militarily against who she finds uh, threatening, like Iran. Russia also respects Israel because it knows that Israel can be a spoiler where it really matters for Russia. And I'm talking about Syria, of course. Russia knows that Israel declared it will not try to operate against Assad and against the Assad regime, but it operates against Iran uh, entrenching itself militarily in Syria. But that Israel respects Russian priorities, first and foremost, Russian assets, then uh, Syrian assets, major assets, and only then there are Iranian assets in Syria, which uh, Military, military assets, which Israel not only disrespects, it operates against. Russia also, I think, gives Israel 
maybe too much, but gives Israel credit to be able to have an open door in Washington and, and to be heard in Washington because Russia is constantly looking for what I call a deal, which means to it will behave in a certain way somewhere in the world and it expects something in return. And it understands the great animosity towards Russia and Washington. It is looking for roots, I think, for ways to have its, its position heard in Washington and to try and reach a deal which is beneficial for both sides. When it comes to Syria, if I may take a certain angle, not directly what you asked, but I'm getting there. Arab states currently, mainly the Gulf, uh, wish to normalize relations with Syria in order to, one, minimize its dependency on Iran. And they growingly see Syria as a buffer against Turkish pan-Ottoman aspirations in the region. And I must admit that in both these regards, Israeli interest is closer to the position of these Arab states than to the policy that was adopted under the Trump administration of uh, boxing in Assad and giving no alternatives. Now, when it comes to Iranian presence, also uh, from the Israeli perspective, we must be realistic. It is very hard to believe, and this is my point of view, that Iran would ever leave Syria. They're there from the period of the Shah. However, since 2011, with the civil war in Syria, as Assad was uh, cornered, he turned more and more towards the Iranians for help, uh, having no other alternatives but Russia. And since both of them were the only ones that proved their loyalty to Assad, he relied on them. Now, currently, uh, U.S. policy of boxing in Assad makes it very hard, in my understanding, for Assad, for Syria, to distance itself from relying on Iran, since there are no alternatives. I believe that if there is an alternative for Syria that would allow it to normalize relations with the region, I think the Syrians would act more positively from an American and an Israeli perspective. We all know what Assad is. He is what he is. And if there could be justice in this world, he would pay for what he did. But it's not a question of justice now, but a question of interest. And an Israeli interest is uh, to have Iran as far away from its borders as possible. Now, Iran is located a thousand miles uh, from Syria. There's no shared border. We do have a shared border with Syria. If Assad uh, doesn't have any alternatives, we will have Iran on our borders. This is unacceptable because the only, the main reason for Iran to be in Syria is to have it as a, as a launching pad, uh, as, a, as a basis for operations against Israel. So Israel could live with Assad if Assad distanced himself with Iran. And would you, therefore, and do you think Israel supports these normalization efforts by some of the Arab states with the Syrian government? I think, and again, uh, putting moral issues aside, I don't think we're privileged enough to discuss moral issues when we have Iranian military equipment directed against us on our borders, also in Lebanon, also by Hamas, also all over the Middle East. I'm not going to even mention Yemen and so on. 
uh, I think it is in the Israeli interest to have a central regime in Syria and not 40 or something radical Islamist factions and to have somebody who would answer to anything that goes wrong. And I would rather have Assad in Syria being dependent on the Gulf than having him there dependent on Iran. Mickey, you've been on the front lines of Israel's outreach to the Gulf. You've traveled to Qatar, you've traveled to Bahrain. Tell me your personal impressions of how these relationships have evolved. We are now in the year of normalization. And where do you see it going next year? I'm very optimistic. I have to tell you that when I traveled with an Israeli passport before the signing of the accords as a private citizen, not as part of the Israeli government, it was wonderful to reach there and to see for my own eyes that it is ridiculous. This accord, this normalization hasn't been reached a long, long time ago. Now, I can tell you, and again, I'm saying this with a smile and very happy that uh, traveling between Israel and the Gulf is becoming a routine. Uh, if not for COVID, we would see, I would risk saying, dozens and more flights a week before, uh, between Israel and the Gulf. This is wonderful. Now, the silver lining of this uh, nuclear JCPOA deal with Iran is that, that it brought Israel closer to its neighbors because we share the same concerns, of course, and the the same threats. However, uh, it is not only threats, because we also see opportunities. Both sides wish to enjoy each other's potential for bilateral cooperation in economics and science, in combating together trans-border challenges like epidemia, climate challenges, and so on. And what really stands out that is this is really peace, not only between governments, but also between people. And it seems like very warm peace. And I truly believe that it can develop for the benefit of both sides. And I hope it can expand to more countries. And I know now you're going to ask me about Palestinians, Andrew. So go ahead. <laughs> you, you guessed it. You guessed it. <laughs> Do you think, heading into next year, that a regional Israeli-Palestinian conference is possible? Do you see uh, these steps uh, toward normalization with the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan as uh, steps along the way to such a, a regional conference? And, and you saw also the remarks by uh, Saudi Prince Turkey al-Faisal at the Manama Dialogue and Foreign Minister Ashkenazi's subsequent statements that uh, Israel is indeed open to negotiations with the Palestinians. Where, where do you see all of this going? Well, regarding the conference, the idea of a conference is very attractive for the Palestinians because it means the possibility to impose a solution by, Israel, by international pressure on Israel rather than negotiate it without preconditions and, and bilaterally. In 2016, I think it was the French foreign minister who offered and insisted on a conference and stated in advance that if it fails, France should or would recognize a Palestinian state, thereby giving the perfect incentive for the Palestinians to make sure such a conference would fail. So I hope this would not repeat itself. It's very, very counterproductive. 
I think it's too soon to tell, but it is quite reasonable to expect pressures from Egypt, from the Emirates and from Saudi Arabia to hold a regional conference with the participation of Israel and the Palestinian that is meant to renew the process of negotiations, uh, which is very positive. I think this pressure would mean to show the Biden administration that these states are the regional states are on the positive side of the issue and they will also pressure Israel, I expect them, to pressure Israel to show some gestures in the sense of negotiations with the Palestinians or any positive steps that in return would be would be answered by normalization. This would be the trade-off, much like what happened between the Emirates and Israel in regard to suspending annexation. Now, it depends a lot, of course, on the, the Biden administration priorities. President Obama had an ideological revolutionary vision, I would say, for the Middle East. I don't know yet about President Biden. He seems to be very pragmatic. I'm not sure he will not prefer uh, to put his energy elsewhere, like in the East, China and Russia. And that would have that would be very important for a potential process uh, between Israel and the Palestinians. Now, regarding the very uh, loud Faisal Ashkenazi meeting, well, I think it stood out also because it was so contrary to the spirit of things between Israel and the Gulf and and. Even Saudi Arabia, we were reported uh, in the media, the Israeli prime minister himself visited uh, Saudi Arabia a couple of weeks ago. Now, the reason I'm guessing here, but the reason could be threefold. First, I think, is the Saudi anger uh, for the, if I may say, very useless and counterproductive leak and of the visit in uh, Saudi Arabia. I think the Saudis were very upset with it. And I definitely understand their position it was super counterproductive, whoever leaked it. A second reason is I think the Saudis are playing hard, or I can say harder to get, because normalization with Israel would come with a cost. I would do the same if I were them. Such actions, such, uh, such sayings would raise the cost. The third and last one would be to show that they are indeed still committed to the Palestinians and the Palestinian uh, idea. Under Trump, they could distance themselves easily. And under Biden, I think it would make more sense for them to show that they are pro the Palestinian cause. But you know, uh, any process of negotiations that would be positive and anything that would lead to more normalization in the region, inshallah. <laughs> Exactly. Mickey, we're out of time, but I wanted to thank you for your time today, your, your insights, your analysis. I always learn from you and very much enjoyed having you on our program today. Thank you very much, Andrew. Uh, thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. And let's look forward to good news. I'll be right back with a few closing remarks and takeaways from my conversation just now with Mickey Aronson after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, I'll monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. 
I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. Many takeaways from our conversation with Mickey Aronson, including her general optimism about U.S.-Israel relations under a Biden administration, even if there may be a few differences to be worked out on Iran or other issues, and her analysis and personal experience so far of the goodwill and positive expectations from Israel's normalization with the UAE in Bahrain. Imagine the commercial and tourist traffic, she noted, if not for the COVID pandemic. I was also taken with Mickey's realism about Syria when she said that Israel would prefer a central government beholden to the Gulf and not Iran, even if that central government has Bashar al-Assad at its head and with no illusions about Assad's brutality. Given Iranian and Iranian-backed forces in Syria on Israel's border, she said that, Syria, uh, that Israel does not have the luxury of decisions based on morality and justice. It's all about Israel's vital national interests. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East, and thanks to our production team of Phil Calabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Rochlin of Two Square Media Productions. We'll be back next week, and in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast, On Israel, at your favorite podcast platform. Music